is that you are already doing something far more difficult than a normal person would ever have to consider. Mm -hmm. So if you show up on that platform, you show up at that competition, you show up to work, you've already gone through something far more difficult than most people will ever have to contend with. And if we look at what a superpower is, it's the ability to do something normal people can't do. And as a diabetic, you are doing that every single day. following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up everyone and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Die Buddies podcast. Today is a a very special episode. We have our second guest with us, uh, and he has got a wealth of knowledge. He's more or less a, a die of veteran. Um, he's been in the diabetes world so long. We have with us uh, Rodney Miller, who's been a diabetic for 32 years. He's a speaker. Um, he's very involved in a group called Diabetic Muscle and Fitness. Um, he's been a strength conditioning coach for a very long time, and he's a founder of a really awesome organization called Bolus and Barbells. So, uh, Rodney, we're very happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, us too. So, uh, yeah, well, let's just kind of start with, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, I kind of butchered probably your whole life story in a couple of seconds. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to condense it down. So, mm -hmm. you know, pretty normal diagnosis, you know, liquid intake rapidly increased. You know, was going to the bathroom all the time, was four years old. So, wow. you know, it, it probably wow. not conveying how I was feeling very mm -hmm. accurately. Um, the only part that really differs of this is when they did finally rush me to the hospital, I had a blood sugar of 880. Oh, and wow. Shortly after beginning treatment, I went into a coma. Oh, and wow. So I spent a couple of weeks in a coma. And, you know, everyone always asked me, well, did you remember any of that? And it's, it's like a, an out of body type experience. I can remember some vague sounds and some lights, but that's about it. But uh, kind of the, the one overall reaching principle of me is that I'm incredibly stubborn. So mm. I was not ready to give in apparently. And <laughs> after a couple of weeks I came out of it and there were no permanent effects from that. And that kind of began uh, what was a pretty rough early years kind of stage you know at that point in time this is 1987 and they were still using the exchange system so mm -hmm. you know you ate a serving of fruit and you took this amount of insulin for it so mm -hmm. the sliding scale was not really used on me in the very beginning and then there was the isolation so I grew up in a very small rural community 
in Southern Oklahoma. I didn't actually meet another diabetic until I was 23 years old. Oh, oh wow. So That's there was cool. a long period of time there where I was alone and I had very uh, overprotective parents. You know, they were, they tried their best, but at the same point in time, like I wasn't allowed to give myself my own shots until I was 16. Oh, wow. And so it was kind of one of those things, like I always felt like I was being held back. Yeah. Um, and so for most of my life, I actively hid that I was a diabetic. You know, I didn't, it wasn't anybody's, you know, nobody, I really believe that nobody cared that I was a diabetic. You know, and so letting out there just put me as a liability and a risk to the people around me. And there were some school issues that I got into that, that basically, you know, further segregated me away from the general class, you know, and I, I had to have special allowances and stuff like that. And so it just kind of isolated and alienated me. And so what was kind of the turning point for me was, you know, we get into the social media age. I'm on Facebook and I've been competing in string sports for a couple of years. And even then I would only ever tell the meat director that I was a diabetic because that was, that was just the responsible thing for me because if something was to happen, they at least need to know. Yeah. But as far as my other competitors, you know, or the, you know, it just really wasn't a spoken about topic. And I got on Instagram and happened to hashtag something diabetes. Don't ask me why. You know, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you why all of a sudden I would do that. But I had a mother hunt me down and message me via Facebook. And she said, hey, I showed my son your videos. And he was like, mom, that's, that's so cool. Like, if he can do that, well, then I can do anything. And after I quit balling like a small child, <laughs> you know, I realized that it really didn't have anything to do with me. It didn't have to do with me looking for special treatment or wanting people to feel sorry for me. It had to do with being a living example of what was possible. And I mm -hmm. am far from an elite level athlete, but not everyone's out there deadlifting cars and pulling fire trucks and especially not doing it as a diabetic. There are a few, there are a few other strength athletes, strong men, strong women that are diabetic, mm -hmm. but you know, this was my journey. And if I could tell it in a way that offered inspiration or just, visual proof to someone else well then it was my responsibility to do that to the best of my ability mm -hmm. wow i mean being so uh, uh almost having like an isolating feeling growing up that's a very awesome and mature and almost a hero kind of mentality that you, you know that you end up turning it into so what was that transition like i mean how did you come from such a alone place to such a um such a strong place I would say that it probably started with finding out that I was going to be a father. Mm, yeah. um, you know, so you rock along. I did, you know, <laughs> typical teenage male things where I put myself in the hospital six times in three years, DKA, oh, every wow. one of those times. You know, I was a very stubborn, again, let's come back to that. You know, I was very much pushing the limits of, not even common sense, just stupidity, you know, and eventually it was going to bite back and, you know, not to dwell on it, but at one point in time, I'd lost 12 pounds in a matter of a couple of days and it took them 15 or 16 sticks with an IV needle 
before they could get it into one that didn't collapse from the dehydration. Oh, wow. Well, I was, I was pure on stupid male ego, not doing what I needed to do. And eventually, you know, I got a little bit better, was still running A1Cs in the eights and, you know, not really taking care of myself, just doing enough to get by. Wasn't training, hadn't begun that journey yet. And my wife came to me and she told me that I was going to be a father. And that was a wake up call. You know, everyone, you all, different people have different calls, but that was the one that said, there's fixing to be another life depending on me to be there, to take care of her, to provide for her. You know, I want to, you know, I'm a very family oriented person. And so the idea of my own actions, not allowing me to be there to walk my daughter down the aisle when she gets married or to see her graduate college or high school or whatever was a, a big slap in the face. I bet, yeah. And that was the catalyst for me to begin my fitness journey. Cause you know, you got to keep in mind when I graduated high school, I weighed 117 pounds at five foot five. Oh, wow. And I'm wow. sitting at two thirty right now at five foot seven. I'd love to say that it's all muscle, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> quarantine does what it does. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. But, but that was the big turning point for me and in, in the mindset. And then I got into training and I realized that I really enjoyed it. You know, I had a trainer that was one of the kind of the old school bodybuilder trainers. Like the first day we trained together, he made me throw up. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've never claimed to be right in the head, but that was a, a mental thing that like, I can push that hard. Yeah. I, I don't have that kind of <laughs> probably common sense that says to stop before you get to that point. <laughs> uh, you know, I've passed out during events and contests. Uh, I actually passed out in the harness during a fire truck pool, uh, just from exceeding, you know, my ability to recover. So, you know, I, I had that kind of aptitude for pushing my body in that way. Um, and, and I found that I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, I was always the run. And so when you're no longer the run, it's really crazy how people's, um, response changes, you know, to that, but it also, String sports is one of those few things in life that you get out of it, what you put into it. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the diabetes has always been kind of a secondary thing. So I trained not because I wanted to help manage my diabetes. I trained because I loved it and the diabetes just had to coincide with it. And it's it's a little different mentality. A lot of people are on the opposite end and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they exercise so that they do, can have better management of their diabetes and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but that wasn't the approach that I took so mine was always looking for how to be a better athlete and through that I ran the gambit of any and every diet that you could possibly imagine and I even worked with two doctors of biochem that specifically work in the nutrition realm uh, to fine-tune and kind of troubleshoot some of the things that I saw happening until we developed a regiment that works well for me. And we've seen it repeatable in others, uh, even game day nutrition, you know, we can go into that in a little bit because I have a very specific protocol for competition days. And, you know, it helps to understand that these metabolic processes are happening 
even though we are diabetic. And so we can take advantage of those because we can help with nutrient timing and accelerating that absorption through the use of insulin. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're using insulin to be better or stronger or anything, but it can help us in a recovery aspect as long as it's very finely tuned and controlled. So you said you kind of started out mainly focused on being a better athlete and tweaking things around that. Did you find that as you were trying to become a better athlete, you were becoming a better diabetic as well? Oh yeah, for sure. So, you know, one of the things that makes a good athlete is consistency. Mm, So the more consistent you are with training and recovery and nutrients, you know, the better that helps in your recovery and your ability to perform. So as that became more regimented, the diabetes became easier to manage because, you know, that sort of, of set schedule aids itself, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. You know, and then, you know, there's a whole slew of benefits that come with, you know, exercise, especially for me. I think anaerobic exercise has a much more profound effect on the diabetes than aerobic exercise. Mm. You know, we see, we hear every bro talk about the anabolic window, Yeah, but that's a very <laughs> real thing. And like for me, post-training, especially post a strongman training session, that might be three to four hours long. I can reduce my bolus insulin by 25 to 35%. You know, wow, so awesome. you're, you're yeah. in a state where you've depleted the glycogen out of your body and the body is very susceptible to uptake. And so your insulin sensitivity tends to be much, much higher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those things and understanding those things, and like I said, working with the doctors of biochem to kind of help me piecemeal through some of that. Because let's face it, there's not a lot of studies done on diabetic athletes. Yeah. No. So, Most of it is anaerobic athletes, like bicyclists, you know, not strong men. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and that was a big catalyst for what led to the invention of bolus and barbells is because there wasn't, there were all these groups for aerobic athletes, mm-hmm. but there were nothing at that time for anaerobic athletes. And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've spent five years, six years at this point, banging my head against the wall, trying to make this make sense. Why don't I just share what I've learned with everybody and Mm -hmm. get together and have fun and lift weights and, you know, build a community around that. But uh, yeah, to long windedly (laughs) bring it back to the point. Absolutely. Being a strength athlete within reason. Now, trying to get to a high level of any sport is going to have some risks associated with it. You know, you're pushing your body to the limit. There's some things there. Um, I do water cuts to make weight classes. Mm -hmm. That's something I don't recommend at all, unless you are a very fine tuned diabetic with qualified coaching and a very clear understanding of what goes on with that. But that's something that absolutely has no business in a health perspective and trying to get the diabetes to manage around that was a, a bit troublesome. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got so many questions and thoughts uh, going because you, you, you have a lot of experience and wisdom in the words that you're saying. So, uh, you know, you've talked about the metabolic window, you know, you've talked a lot about even just knowing that after an event, your bolus goes down, your bolus goes down, you know, 25, 30%. If somebody is scared to experiment and figure that out, you know, how do you even start trying to understand what that even means and how your body can adapt that way? 
right? Unfortunately, the diabetes is the, the, the most gray area autoimmune maybe out there because individuals, you know, genetic makeup and metabolism and other, you know, there's so many things that go into that. For me, I'm not one of those people that get nervous at a competition. I like competing more than I like training. You know, that's the narcissistic diva in me. <laughs> so, so I don't get that dump of adrenaline and that anxiety that tends to skyrocket a lot of people. You know, we, we've talked to a lot of different athletes out there and even, um, oh man, I'm so bad with names. Uh, Kyle Cochran, I believe is his name. He was a finalist on American Ninja Warrior. He said that he actually raises his basal by 400% on a competition day. Wow. Because the nerves are that. And, and, you know, the thing about that, too, is that he's got a very short duration of activity. And there's a lot of standing around and waiting because it's a team. Yeah, there's a lot of build up to it and everything. Yeah. Right. So you're in that like high heightened state. You've got all this adrenaline pumping around and you're not doing anything with all that energy. So for a lot of my power lifters, you know, we're, we're talking about nine lifts over an entire day, not counting, you know, sub-maximal warm-ups and stuff like that. So there's not a lot of output. And so we tend to see that they run much higher during the day. And, you know, there's a couple of, of ways we can go about it. We can do, you know, things like uh, high bolus amounts. What I prefer to do and what we've seen the most success with is taking that basal rate, especially if they're pumpers, and railing it through the roof. I mean... Mm. I've got one that we actually did a 500% basal. You know, she actually yeah. had to go in and put a new basal program in, but she sure. doesn't like to eat during the event. And so bolusine doesn't work well because then you're going to have these spikes in insulin and yeah. drops in levels. So if we just run it off of the basal, then it's a lot easier to snack your way through that. And you have to be eating at these events. Mm -hmm. like you can't, you know, a powerlifting meet may start at 10 o'clock in the morning and go to six, sometimes eight o'clock at night. Yep. Mm -hmm. You can't expect to have optimal performance on those last three lists if you haven't eaten all day. Yeah, no kidding. And staying above 185, you know, that's the renal threshold. So at that point, you're spilling sugar into the kidneys and your rate of dehydration rapidly increases. And so you can't go to the platform waterlogged either, you know, so it's all about balancing things and it's very much a individualized program. And that's why I don't take on a ton of clients because I have to be very involved. I have to learn how their bodies react to things. And, you know, some of my clients are at a high level and some are at a, at a, a less traversed area of their diabetes journey and so you know those people at a high level they've already got some of these variables figured out and that's it you know it's a little more to leave them alone on the other side of it sometimes i have to walk that step with them you know every step till we figure out you know these are your variables and protocols that work well mm -hmm. yeah so you're so you're saying that there's not a cookbook approach to this we can't just say oh do this and it's yeah. going to work for everybody Unfortunately, it our lives would be so much easier if n equaled one every single time. But yeah. you know, there's just so many variables that come into play with this dietary, activity-wise. You know, it, it and, and like I said, we've even seen some genetic 
aptitude towards things, you know, that play into these, these variables. And so, yeah, the, the biggest piece of advice I think I give to any diabetic is that you are your own diabetic and you can get guidelines or maybe ideas from others. But at the end of the day, you have to put in the research time to mm -hmm. develop protocols that work for you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the reason I bring that up is I think me and Garrett always get um, questions, whether it's from, you know, other diabetics or just our patients about um, what they can do that's going to, you know, make everything perfect. And it's like, well, there's a lot of, a lot of work on both ends of the, uh, of that, of that playing field of, all right, what are you doing? How is your body reacting? Because there's a lot that goes into how the body works and how it responds to anything that you're trying to do. Absolutely. You know, even a response to exercise is not always the same. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things that we developed over the years was, you know, diabetics tend to see a spike in glucose levels during a high intensity anaerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people raise their hands in the air and start yelling, well, it's adrenaline. Yes and no. If you're that excited doing dumbbell curls, <laughs> I want to come train with you because that's like being chased across the Serengeti. You know? So that's really you know, funny. You know, kudos to you if you're going that ham on some on some preacher curls. But in reality, what we're seeing is we're seeing a pulse of glucagon to get glycogen out of the liver and begin mm. the transport process to the muscle tissue because the anaerobic exercise cycle is so much faster demanding on an energy uh, to burn that it doesn't have time to uncouple the fat and return it into glycogen and get it to the muscle cells. So mm. we're seeing kind of what I call a transient high is that's why some diabetics don't treat it. And eventually it goes away a couple of hours post training because eventually the basal comes along and with the increase in insulin sensitivity, it acts as enough of a shuttle to mm. get the glycogen back into the muscle tissue. Some people try to treat it and then end up bottoming out at the end of training because their mm -hmm. insulin sensitivity is much higher and mm -hmm. it was kind of already going where it needed to go. It just needed a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll say this before I begin this, the, the, the thought process on this, this is highly individualistic and it's very body weight dependent mm -hmm. for me. 200 plus pounds in a male, I'll have about 30 grams of dextrose and I just use Gatorade powder because it's cheap and it's an easy form to get in. Uh, and if you buy the powder itself, it's actually dextrose, not high fructose corn syrup. Mm -hmm. But I'll have that 30 minutes prior to training with a full dose of insulin plus an additional one to two units. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to give the body an ample energy supply to feed off of that's not going to require a lot of blood to be in my digestive tract because it's just, it's powder and it's liquid and it's very easy to absorb. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to give it a little extra to offset what I know the liver is going to dump out. Cause let's face it, that whole cycle of getting glycogen out of the liver for most diabetics is a very inefficient prog process. You know, mm. it seems like we, don't have a very accurate gait on that. It tends to be either a full dump or none at all. So yeah. I'm trying to offset that. And then on my more strenuous days, I'll have another 20 grams of dextrose intra workout with another full dose of insulin. Mm -hmm. 
I don't recommend the intra-workout carbs unless you're very large and putting out effort at a very high rate. Mm. You know, some of the strongman stuff, I may have to pick up a 200-pound sandbag and run it 100 feet, run back and grab another one at 100 feet and back in 100 feet, time capped at 75 seconds. Or I may have to clean and press a 200 to a 220-pound log as many reps as possible in 60 to 75 seconds. Mm-hmm. A lot of energy output there. So yeah. that's very much tailored to the activity that I'm going to do. If I'm going to go in and do bodybuilding stuff and some curls and maybe some bench press and stuff like that, I don't mess with the intra workout carbs. It's not needed. There's not that much expenditure being had. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen with this is that we tailor this down and everything. And again, it's very body weight dependent, like a hundred and 30 pound female is not going to need that many carbs to get through the workout. You know, her body just doesn't output that same calorie expenditure. Mm -hmm. So, but we've seen this repeatable in providing perfectly flat lines during training. If anything, my control is the best when I'm training because Mm. I have such a structured protocol that goes along with that. I gotcha. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, Do you find it, uh, pretty drastically different in the approaches and the techniques you have to use with, you know, other diabetics and clients during working out specifically when it's men versus women. You know, as far as the diabetes goes, other than tailoring back the energy expenditure tends to be the biggest uh, misalignment there. You know, men typically have a much higher rate of energy expenditure and now whether that's from size and, and, you know, body mass and things like that, that's probably a very large contributor to that. But other than that, there's some really unique ways in strength sports and how you train those for women versus men. Women can handle a much higher percentage of their max for reps than men. Hmm. So I've seen women take 95% of their one rep max and hit four to five reps with it. And I know majority of guys would be yeah. lucky to get one to two with 95. <laughs> Absolutely. So the, it, you know, the, again, it, it's as long as you understand the underlying metabolic processes that are kind of happening, they're going to happen for everybody. It, it's, it's the dosing, the amount of insulin used and the amount of food administered as well is, is what has to vary so greatly from one person to the next. And I've had people run every gambit of the diet as well. So while I myself follow a moderate carb approach, I had an athlete for years that was a keto athlete. And she eventually got into doing targeted keto, which basically means she would ingest carbs right prior to training so that they were immediately burned through and it didn't knock her out of ketosis. Mm. That's what works best for her. Mm. But that goes back to nutrient timing. And, you know, there's – you can play around with that a lot, but for me personally, from six o'clock in the morning till noon, I limit carbs. And then most, I would say probably 50% of my carbs for the day are completely sandwiched before, during, and after training. I got you, yeah. Again, the caveat there is that I do nothing at work but sit on my butt. So, <laughs> again, there's not a lot for me to do with those excess calories, that, that energy, that fuel. So, I leave mm-hmm. it for its most opportune time to be used. I got you. Yeah. I think that's so interesting just because, you know, when you're working with 
clients and, you know, other diabetics and, you know, it's a very targeted area of, you know, performance and, and athleticism where, you know, Dr. Grady and I, when we're working with people, it's more of like an overall health perspective. And I think it's just interesting because if you're a diabetic, you have to consider all of those things. And it's, it's such a juggling act once you add the fitness into it, because it's like, all right, how do I perform with this? Well, if I have other things going on, like whether it be gut issues, whatever else, how do I maximize my diabetes for those issues too? And um, man, it's just crazy how many things a diabetic has to balance simultaneously uh, that everyday people don't really think about. Yeah. So during my uh, kind of motto when I speak at events is that having type one is having a superpower. Hmm. And most everyone in the room is like looking around like this guy has lost it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> an autoimmune disease is absolutely not a superpower. But my explanation of it is, is that you are already doing something far more difficult than a normal person would ever have to consider. Mm-hmm. So if you show up on that platform, you show up at that competition, you show up to work, you've already gone through something far more difficult than most people will ever have to contend with. And if we look at what a superpower is, it's the ability to do something normal people can't do. And as a diabetic, you are doing that every single day. Wow. I love that. That's awesome. So that's, and that's good. I'm not going to lie and say that that's always been how I view diabetes. But, <laughs> You know, when I look at the friends that I've made, the people I've connected with, you know, even you guys here, like we've been on call for 30, 45 minutes now and, you know, we mesh really well and we have this understanding because we understand what other people are, what we ourselves are going through. And that's a gift that we're given with something like this. You know, there's, there's always a silver lining to something that sounds really cliche, but I really believe there is. So when you meet another diabetic, they instantly know what you're going through because they know what a high blood sugar feels like. They know what a low blood sugar feels like. They know that rapid yo-yo feeling. And that's a level of empathy very few humans ever enjoy with another human being. Mm -hmm. And when you have that level of empathy, you are then put in a position where you can aid that person by just being there and showing them that they're not alone. So... Is it a gift? Uh, it's it's a superpower. You know, even Spider-Man got bit by a spider. I don't know that that would be a <laughs> gift per se. So, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but there are some real positives that we can take from this and that we can act as a salve for our fellow human. And just me personally, I think when you can help another human being, that that's a, the, one of the greatest things that you can ever do with your life. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. And, you know, that's kind of uh, the hope with, with this uh, podcast that we're doing, just trying to connect more people to one another because these communities just are, are so needed between people because, you know, how, how you said you grew up, you didn't meet another diabetic until you are in your 20s. Obviously, with social media, it's a little different now. But, but man, that is, you know, it's really easy to feel alone when you don't have that empathy connection with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I like the analogy of the Spider-Man bite. That's, that, that was pretty good. <laughs> so I, I was thinking about, you know, you, with the diets, when you work with people, do you not even address the type of the diet, whatever they bring to the table is what they bring with, and then you work with it? Or is there 
any particular, whether it be moderate, high, low carb, or anything else in between, is there something that you try to steer people to, or do you just take them as is, whatever they want to do, and work with it that way? In the beginning, I was a little more self-righteous. Now, I'm, I, because let's face it, the only diet that people are going to find success with is the one that they'll actually adhere to. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. while I have my own personal ideas of what is the most effective diet, some people are just not able to buy into the methodology behind some of these diets. And so it's much harder to force them into something they, uh, they feel uncomfortable with. Now, over time, you know, like I said, even the keto athletes saw that eventually adding some carbs in led to better athletic uh, expenditures, better athletic performance. So it's hard to get away from that. You know, carbs are the most efficient fuel source for anaerobic activity. You know, that's, that's kind of, that's an immutable fact. Yeah. You know, it's hard to argue with that. And so instead of trying to kind of rapidly change everyone's idea of what a diet should be, I try to instill okay, let's use carbs for a very specific time for a very specific goal. And we eventually learn how those carbs affect everything. And then they become more comfortable inserting carbs into other aspects of their day. So, but to give you an idea, I went through everything. I did keto. I did carb cycling. I did intermittent fasting. I did uh, carb backloading. Um, you know, even the more popular like Atkins diet type things and, and all this and that. One of the funniest things to me is that the diet that I thought would have failed the hardest proved to be the most successful for me. It's also one of the hardest for me to maintain because I like red meat, mm. but you know, and, and this, this one's going to ruffle some feathers. Fat causes <laughs> insulin resistance. It just happens, you know, that's not necessarily saying that fat is bad. That's just a function of metabolism, right? So we can't, we can't get away from that. So where we typically see bad things happen is when we start mixing high amounts of fat and high amounts of carbs, right? right. That's where pizza is a, it's so hard. Yeah. yeah. You know, I know some diabetics that dose pizza for seven hours because that's how long <laughs> it takes them to yeah. metabolize that and get it out of their body because it's mm-hmm. very high carb and it's very high fat. Right. So, and again, the caveat here is I'm not saying fat is bad. If you are a successful keto person, more power to you. It doesn't work for everybody, just like carbs don't necessarily work for everybody. Mm-hmm. So individualized. But yeah. for me, what I have found was when I brought my fats down to sub 50 grams of fat per day and took my carbs up to 50% of calories per day, my insulin ratios were the best they've ever been. Mm. My correction factors took half the time they used to. My uh, overall ability to perform was greatly improved. You know, because one of the things with keto is that people lose a lot of weight there at first and a lot of it's water weight because there's no longer carbs in the muscle tissue to retain water. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the functions of athletic performance is dehydration, you know, fatigue caused by dehydration. And so we have less water in the muscle it tends to be from a biomechanical perspective, less able to produce force, right? The leverage changes. 
So by having a constant influx of carbs, my muscles were always full and topped off. So then when I did go to perform, my performance was improved. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to stick at that. Sub 50 grams of fat a day when you're eating 200 grams of protein and 300 grams of carbs a day, it's not mm -hmm. an easy diet. Yeah. Sure. It's not. I'd much rather sit back and keto bacon and <laughs> sirloins and ribeyes all day yeah, because that's just, that's how I like to eat. That's, that's the food that's palatable to me. So I use this diet kind of pre-contest and contest ready only because it's not, I, I can't use the diet all the time because it's just so monotonous. It's a lot of chicken, a lot of rice and not a lot of else because that's, that's the two main things that have those, you know, very lean protein, very carb dense foods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, looping back to the original question, most of the time I'm trying to optimize how they're currently using their diet. You know, I'm not trying to change when I was younger, you could find lots of posts on Facebook of me telling you, you had to eat carbs to be a high level athlete. Mm. And it's just <laughs> not that that battle is, is, not a lost cause but it's just not worth it and yeah. ultimately at the end of the day we can find keto athletes at any level of sport and mm -hmm. so if that's what works for you that's what works for you and i'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel if you have a system in place that provides good blood sugars and good performance mm -hmm. yeah. i think it's a really honorable mature and just in reality uh, a better way of approaching things you know adapting it and working with the person that way then then yeah being very zealous in in the approach you take um i, I think just for authentic uh point perspective i think grady and i we probably would disagree about the insulin and fat uh or rather fat causing insulin resistance uh but that being said what you said hits the nail on the head with um you know what works with you and the genetic variants there's so many factors you know, as long as you're doing what you need to do, that's the most important thing. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and, and there's variations within that as well. So for me, you know, I hate to say it, but the A1C, <clears throat> anytime that I try to get my A1C under six, my athletic performance plummeted. Mm -hmm. So for me, the happy medium was an A1C between six and 6.5. Mm. And that's where I performed the best. I had a very low standard deviation and it worked well. Now nice. there's a lot of athletes out there I've seen perform well at sevens may not be the most optimal from an overall health perspective, but I've also seen athletes at a five, five or a 5.8 A1C perform optimally as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's, it's so hard to just say this is what you have to do because right. you're, you can always find someone that's so far outside of that realm. Yeah. Well, in fact, I know an elite level powerlifter that had he told me his most successful meet his a1c two weeks prior was a nine. Oh wow oh, holy cow <laughs> so you know it's so weird you know and and you know i don't know how y'all feel about diabetic complications but yes an aspect of it is you know we can't get away from high blood sugar does cause you know uh, neuropathy and retina damage and stuff like that mm -hmm. but if we take away diabetes for a second, you have certain genetic predispositions to certain breakdowns of organs and body shapes and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So like diabetes didn't make me a predominantly endomorph 
individual. Like my mm. obliques are wider than my hips. And that's not because I'm a diabetic, you know, right. that's the genetic factor. So that's why, you, you know, you kind of have to take everything together. Mm-hmm. Not, you can't just be like, well, this is this way because of the diabetes. Yeah. 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 I think that uh, that's important to, to point out, especially when there's so much psychological turmoil in a diabetic's mind in terms of what they're doing now and whether they are thinking about the future or not thinking about the future, but then they can easily beat themselves up thinking about the neuropathy or the retinopathy or all these other, you know, heart disease, thinking all these things can be scary. And, and, you know, there's all these, so many factors happening simultaneously. And, you know, there is definitely something to be said about viewing yourself as a, not a diabetic sometimes when you're in a certain situation. Right. You know, the, you know, it, it, one of the other things that I like to point out, especially when I talk to parents is that there's this big feeling of failure when your child has an errant blood sugar, right. Mm. Or their A1Cs, you know, I can tell you when I went through puberty, there was no control in my blood sugar. It just wasn't, wasn't even a possibility. Um, yeah. And some of that was the medical community that time told us to not give over this amount of insulin because it would kill me when we know now that during that time period, you, you're just going to need more insulin because of all the insulin resistant hormones floating around. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we look at the, the, the Dexcom or we look at the finger stick, you know, we're seeing a pinpoint in time and that blood sugar is not a reflection of your success as a person. 100%. You know, it, it's, it's a transient number. It's going to change a million, million times over the course of your life. And all it is, is a data point. And what to be proactive, you just look at the data point and you make a educated next step. You know, when we got on here, my blood sugar was trending up because I just got done eating about an hour ago. And again, more, being more sedentary means I have to take more insulin and sometimes square wave boluses tend to work better for that stuff. So I took what I thought would initially blunt the increase and it wasn't enough. So before we started, I came in and I took another shot because I looked and I saw where we were going and I knew how to head it off. So it's, it, they're just data points. And that's really hard because again, like you said, it, there's such a big psychological effect when we look at these things and unfortunately some in the medical community treat these as like whipping points you know oh well why is it here you know what did you do yeah you know and and it's not it's it's sometimes there's just no control over anything and these things happen Mm. but what you do from that point forward is on you and you have control over that next step yeah that's you hit it right on the money there. And um, I think a point that I, that me and Garrett always iterate and what you kind of pointed out was getting data, getting data points for yourself and as much data as you can get, because the more data you have, the more um, educated guesses that you're going to get right. And um, the more success you're going to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I was kind of late to the CGM game, but that's why I honestly believe that CGMs are the single greatest piece of diabetes tech that a diabetic can use. I mean, I've, I've done the pump. Uh, I've done MDI for over 30 years. 
you know, those are manageable either way you do those, you know, mm -hmm. how we administer the insulin is kind of a, an individualistic thing on what we prefer. But if we don't have accurate data to go off of, it's so much more difficult. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. I would agree. And then just for anybody who's not listening, uh, cause mostly it's MDI just stands for multiple daily injections. Oh. Uh, just to kind of reiterate that. Um, but yeah, the, I love the Dexcom. I actually just switched to the Dexcom. I feel like I was cheating at Medtronic because I, I still have some like Medtronic like gear. <laughs> it felt like I was uh, switching teams. But uh, but yeah, no, that that is such an important point um, th that you bring up. And it, it's so individualized and, and learning your body. Dexcom, like you said, the CGM is the greatest way to learn your body and learn your numbers. And you can in real time see how that workout is affecting you or how that stress is affecting you, how that sleep is affecting you is there's just data there that you would never get otherwise. So, yep. Yep. And, and there's, I wish I could remember her name. I'll, I'll probably send you a link to her profile afterwards, but there is a non-diabetic who has been using the Libre to mm. host glucose. She calls it glucose hacking. And you know, in a way it is, I, I hate the terminology used there, but <laughs> you know, she'll eat certain things and then post the graphs and even she's gotten other people to wear them as well. And mm -hmm. so now she has a population of non-diabetics that are using CGMs. Mm -hmm. And we see how these fluctuations are kind of normal and naturally occurring. You know, there's some people out there that feel like you have to have this perfectly flat line mm -hmm. or you're not being successful. And that's, while it is doable, it's not actually natural. You know, if we mm. see a non-diabetic, we put them on a CGM, they're going to have a bump in, in glucose level after eating certain foods. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just helps to reiterate that. We see the, our data and then we pose it against a non-diabetic's data and we go, oh, well, we're not as broken as we, <laughs> as we thought we were. <laughs> yeah. This is just normal things that are happening. But yeah, the, the CGM, man, it's just such a you know, and I, I was at a couple conferences where they talked about the looping, you know, where they have third party hacked, you know, certain pumps with Dexcom and tied those together to run an automated delivery system. And that stuff is super exciting. Oh, yeah. There's even a pump company out there that is working on a glucagon and insulin based pump, mm -hmm. um, which would be a true closed loop system. Right. You know, the only way to have a true closed loop system. So there's uh, technology is advancing on this stuff and getting more accurate and getting more user friendly. And so mm -hmm. while don't get me wrong, I would love for there to be a cure tomorrow and that we could all just get together and have a happy party after yeah. quarantine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and celebrate that we would never have to be a diabetic again, but there's a lot of technological advancements that are, you know, Bear in mind, when I stuck my finger for the first time, it took two and a half minutes to get a reading. Oh, oh wow. wow. And it took like, it felt like a liter of blood. Like, you know, <laughs> it was like a square centimeter. It wasn't that big, but it felt like it was a square <laughs> centimeter of, of blood filler that I had to put on there. But, um, you, you know, the, the technological advancements are really putting us in a position to be more educated about our bodies to be able to take steps to more finely tune and hone our thought process when it comes to how we interact with our diabetes management. Yeah, 
You know, absolutely. I'd kind of like to take a couple more months just to reflect on that a little bit more. I mean, being diabetic for, you know, as long as you have and, you know, being conquering it and just, you know, the life that you've lived when it comes to the technology aspect of it, you know, kind of, do you mind talking about a little bit more through how you've lived your life and the changes you've seen a little more in detail in terms of how you've managed your diabetes with the technology that was available at that time? Yeah, no. Uh, my first shots were pig insulin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they, they started me. Now, again, you have to keep in mind, I lived in very rural southern Oklahoma. So, okay. like, 30 minutes to the nearest Walmart. That kind oh, of, yeah. You know, so maybe they weren't as up-to-date on current medical practices as, you know, maybe <laughs> big cities were, but... So my first injections were pig insulin and I didn't react very well to it at all. And so uh, very quickly they transitioned me over to Humulin N and Humulin R. And I was on that uh, until my early 20s. So I was very late to the game on the Humalog, Lantus, Levomir uh, analogs. You know, I, I was using what <laughs> the doctor that I finally went and saw when I started taking it more serious and trying to fine tune things. He was flabbergasted that I was still using these archaic insulins to, <laughs> to treat my body. But, you know, before CGMs and stuff, I fought and fought and fought and fought with insurance so that I could have 20 test strips per day. And I would test 15 to 20 times per day. I would test prior to eating, I would test an hour and a half post cradle, so post meal. And then if I was going to go train or it had been longer than four hours from my last testing, I was testing again. So I was trying to be a CGM. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I can tell you that there are no feeling in these fingertips anymore because of that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was one of the, that's just what you did. I mean, if, if you wanted accurate data you had to do things like that and mm -hmm. so you know blood machines became much more small much more compact much less uh, blood needed to get a result at the time like i said you know two and a half minutes down to and i'm trying to remember i think my meter now takes like five seconds uh, you know it's yeah. insane insane um wow. and i was never on a pump i never wanted a pump so I can't speak as to that, but, you know, being around as many diabetics as I have and, and older diabetics that have gone through some of the early pump iterations, it's just like, wow, you know, you were walking around with like a boom box on your hip <laughs> to, to pump some insulin in you. Um, I did have one of the first Medtronic pumps, uh, the ones that everyone has now used to hack to use the loop system. And uh, I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. Um, for me, I live in West Texas, and so it gets very hot here. So I, I was cooking insulin because I was playing a lot of golf. Mm, and yeah. so I'd put 300 units in this thing, go out and play, you know, 36 holes of golf in a full day, and all that insulin was just dead. Like, it's just cooked in 100-plus degree heat. But, um, you know, when I started getting into the CGMs and stuff like that, you know, I started on the G4 platform mm. and almost on the end, I think I had it a year before the G5 came out. Okay. 
and loved it. I was like, why, why, what is this? One of the hardest things for me to understand was how delayed the information I was getting actually was. Mm. You know, for me personally, it seems like I've got about a 15 minute delay between actual reading and what the CGM is telling me because mm. you know, it's measuring interstitial fluid. Yep. Um, you know, the four, I tend to, I saw a lot more compression lows, um, false lows from exercise. You know, it was almost like I was sucking all the glucose out of that fluid, just trying to get it into the muscle tissue. You know, it, it said that I was like 50 and I checked and I was 82 and it's like, what is the deal here? But you yep. just, you work through those early complications. I'm still on the G5 fixing to be forced into the G6. Um, the G5 is a lot less prone to that. And so it's nice to see how that's developed. Mm. Um, the pump that I eventually tried was the Omnipod because it was mm. a tubeless pump. And so, you know, being in strongman, I'm always carrying these odd shaped objects and the risk of getting wrapped up in tubing on top of one of these two, three hundred pound objects just didn't set well with me. Yeah. Just thought, maybe this isn't the best idea. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. You know, I've broken glasses on my own face because I dropped a 200 pound keg on it one day. <laughs> oh, wow. Clean and press a, a full beer keg. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, tubing is probably not a good idea for this guy. Um, <laughs> So the Omnipod was great. The remote's a little bit like, eh, why can't we get this on a phone? You know, the technology's there, but I think that's coming. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, just the fact that, you know, I had a remote to my artificial pancreas here. You know, I just mm -hmm. click a button and it would administer insulin. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm used to doing all these calculations in my head for being all these years of MDI, multiple daily injections. And so now that this thing is calculating my carb ratios, calculating my correction factors mm -hmm. i was a little resentful at first i'm not gonna lie i'm like ah you don't know and then i run the calculation <laughs> in my head i'm like oh okay well that's accurate so yeah. there we go back in my day <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i know i'm not gonna lie there's gray in this beard for a reason <laughs> uh but i was used to doing all that you know i'll, I'll <laughs> try to tell you a short but funny story the one time that i had a doctor fire me I actually had an endocrinologist fire me over this. I was doing keto, eh, very low carb slash keto. And I was using Humalog and Humalin R for bolusing. So what I was doing was I was using the Humalog to treat the trace carbs or the low amount of carbs that I was ingesting. And then I was using the Humalin R to take care of the protein conversion on the back end. Mm, yeah. Sure. Nice. Which at that time, I did keto a lot different than we see it done a lot. I was doing like old school bodybuilding keto. And so mm. it was like 60, 65% of calories from protein, mm. you know, mm. so I'm 400 plus grams of protein a day at this point. Yeah. There was some, you know, neo glucose neogenesis happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I went in and I had, you know, my books and everything and I was showing them the data and, you know, I was writing in shorthand what the insulin was. So, you know, I'd write Huma and then I'd write HR and write dosing. And he goes, well, what's the HR? And I said, it's Humalin R. He goes, but you're taking Humalog, right? And I said, yes. He goes, you're taking both? Yes. At the same time? Yes. And here's why. And he said, nope, we're done here. 
and he straight up refused to ever see me again. Wow. That's crazy. Talk about not being patient centered. (laughs) Well, you know, unfortunately there's, there's some, there's a lot of that that happens, but you know, I'm not going to say it was the smartest thing to do because the overlaps are very, you've really got to know how those half-lives affect those two insulin types on top of running the long acting in the background. But I was used to doing all that in my head. Mm -hmm. And so then when that goes away and it goes to, you know, I'm used to running 15 to 20 blood sugars a day in my head as well. And now Mm -hmm. I can also input that into a device. Yeah. Or a device just tracks it for me. And there's a couple of, uh, have you ever heard of tide pool? I've heard of it, but I'm not too familiar. So it's a database collecting. And so it'll take data from multiple devices and overlap the data. Mm. Oh, cool. Dang. It's very, very cool. And so, you know, then I can take, you know, dosing data and overlay it over graph data. And it's just like, that's next level. Yeah. (laughs) At at that point, like, you you know, to be an elite little athlete, I'm not going to say it's easy now, but it's so much easier now than it was when I first started just, you know, so, and and even during a contest, to put this into perspective, there's times, you know, I, I wear the Dexcom on my stomach because it's the only place I get the most accurate readings. Mm. And I went all the way out to Phoenix to do a contest and I was warming up for the first event and it was a 600 pound tire flip and I flipped the tire over and it had rained that morning and the tire slid and fell down the front of my body and took yeah. the Dexcom with it. Yeah. Sure. Right. So now I'm in Phoenix, it's October, it's stupid hot, I'm sweating profusely, I'm not getting another one of these DEXs to stick. Yeah. Plus waiting two hours for it to get to a calibratable state. Yeah. So I went to the fallback method. And so we tested before and after every event, and if it was longer than 20 minutes before the next event, we were testing again. Mm-hmm. And that was the only way that I could keep a measured approach. Um, that also happened when I competed in my – uh, first national level contest in Raleigh, North Carolina. I actually had a woman who is pretty big in the diabetes space herself, Daniel Hargenrader. Um, she goes by the Diabetes Dominator. Nice. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> kind of a, a diabetes life coach, and uh, she's written a book too. It's really good. But uh, she flew down to handle me, you know, basically keep gear where I needed it and food and whatnot. And the same thing happened. The decks came off. I think that came off the second event maybe, but we had to do the same thing. And she was just like, this is what you do. You know, you know, she was an athlete and did some CrossFit, did some strength training and stuff like that. But at the competition level, that's what you have to do. And the Mm -hmm. Dexcom just takes all that away. Yeah. Absolutely. You You go pick up your phone and you go, Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. That's where it's trending, you know. That's, yeah. that's where it's fixing to be in another 10, 15 minutes. So, yeah. the technology advancements are incredible, and there's some new ones that are coming out. The Horizon system that the Omnipod is coming out with that's supposed to have mm-hmm. some integrated support with CGMs is what that's I'm going to be. Is, that's is going to be with the Libri, right? Yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The I heard about the combination of the glucagon insulin you know, closed loop pump a couple of years ago. And, and you even said it too, in terms of uh, how we are less adaptive to use our glucagon and liver glycogen in certain situations, because 
how our how our bodies understand insulin and the rate that our, we would produce insulin is a signal that would allow our body then to either stop or produce more of the glucagon. And having those two simultaneously is going to drastically change um, how we manage our, our numbers like that because that is such a normal physiolog physiological aspect that we're missing when we're just only using the, the insulin part. So Exactly. And that's, that's what really excites me about it mm -hmm. because you know, I'm not one of those that like wants to completely hand off everything to a device to manage independently without me, you know, being able to interject myself. But mm -hmm. unfortunately the reality is, is that too many diabetics die in their sleep. One yep. is too many. Exactly. And, yep. You know, and over the years, cause I used to be an admin of the type one athletes group as well uh, mm. for about six years. So those about once a year we, we would see someone post up that someone had uh, died in their sleep and so this is a method that could prevent that from ever happening again mm -hmm. you know uh, and so that's what's very meaningful to me about a system like that is that you know we've all woken up in two three four o'clock in the morning with that catastrophic low Mm -hmm. um, I'll be the first to tell myself I've eaten some of the weirdest concoctions imaginable <laughs> because the, you know, the brain is being deprived of glucose and it's in survival mode. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that there could be a system that would completely negate that from happening is very exciting and very uh, keen on uh, watching how that progresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's very exciting times and I feel very blessed to, you know, be living now with diabetes, even if it was like 60 years ago or let alone 100 years ago. I mean, in terms of the athleticism that you can do now, um, I would definitely feel a lot more afraid to do. I, I've been transitioning more to aerobic uh, performing at sports, you know, and I'd be way more afraid to do that without the support of the technology there. You could do it. But uh, it's it's definitely enables people to live lives that they thought they never could before, which is and or just live like in the you know how you were saying in terms of just the low blood sugar aspect of things um, in the middle of the night. So exactly, you know, and that's we you talk to some of these people that are around 40, 50. I'm trying to remember Richard Vaughn. I think has been a type one for over sixty years. Wow, um, and you know, there was no method of testing at that point. You know, I, I don't believe even keto sticks were around at that point. Wow. But some of these early adopters, not early adopters, early diabetics, that was their only method of testing blood sugar was a keto stick. Uh -huh. yep. <laughs> you know, so if you look at that, I mean, we've gone from trying to determine what shade of ketones you had mm -hmm. to <laughs> having at your fingertips gobs of data that then you can make an educated decision off of. It's yeah. extremely exciting. And uh, there's so many options, you know, with pump companies, like you said, you've gone from Medtronic to now trying the Dexcom and stuff like that. So, you know, if one device doesn't fit your lifestyle or your body just doesn't seem to absorb well from that certain insertion set, you know, there's, there's options out there. So it's, it's awesome time to, uh, I'm not going to say it's an awesome time to be a diabetic, but it's definitely 
we have some advantages at this day and age that no prior generation of diabetics have ever had. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, man, I'm having so much fun just talking about all this stuff with you, Rodney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's uh, kind of focus, start focusing a little bit back more on, you know, the, the type of strength training you see with, with athletes um, and some of the challenges that they have, whether it's, if it's different, what is something that's the most common challenge, you know, somebody that comes to you for advice or what is some, what might be the hardest challenge to overcome for some of the people coming to you for advice when it comes to sport performance, you know, muscle performance, strong man, strong woman, powerlifting, those types of things. I would say probably the, the biggest one is getting time and range and the deviation back down. Hmm. Um, you know, that's because that's, so little of progress is done in the gym. Yes, it's vitally important, but the nutrition and the sleep and the recovery is the name of the game. You know, that's what has to be optimized to get the most out of these workouts. So helping them to understand their body's variables and how they react to things and kind of narrowing that window of ups and downs into a better range almost always elicits an increase in performance. You know, mm. there's, there's a point of diminishing returns. You know, like we talked about for me, it was trying to go below a six. So at that point, the return didn't equate to the, the progress that I was making strength wise. So, you know, we, we look at that. We try to also work within their individual goals you know, because some people, you know, there's weight classes. So some people want to be in a certain weight class or they want to be, they want to move up a weight class. Um, you know, say they've just got a body shape that's a little more petite or slender and they would be a much stronger, better performing athlete if we put 10 pounds on them. Well, to do that without rampant blood sugar spikes from trying to eat the food, you know, is just as problematic as trying to diet down and prevent the lows. So that's, that's the biggest challenge is trying to hone them in on their own body and getting them managing and taking these, these next step type procedures. You know, you pick up the Dexcom, you look at it, that's a point in time. We can't do anything about that number that's currently there in the past. We can only do something about it in the future. Yep. So we, we can't, you know, again, data points and moving forward. That's the name of the game. That's so parallel to probably why you started Bullets and Barbells. And I definitely want to take some, a little bit of time and just talk about your organization. Um, so can, I don't think we really have talked about it at all yet. So uh, kind of, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do with that organization? So Bullets and Barbells started as a, I was an admin of the type one athletes group and I saw a, a lack of options for strength based anaerobic based athletes in the type one community. You know, if you wanted to bicycle, do Ironmans, triathlons, any of that kind of stuff, run ultra marathons, even there were groups and there were support for those type of athletes. But if you wanted to use a barbell as a means to increase performance or increase your, uh, your overall health, there wasn't a lot of support. And there was a lot of misunderstanding with some of the things that happened during the anaerobic training cycles. 
So I got the bright idea of, hey, I've got all these friends, acquaintances that are type ones that like to lift stuff. <laughs> Let's go to Austin, Texas, kind of a vacation-y type spot and have an event. And from that point, the first one was kind of feeling things out and we weren't a nonprofit. I had no intentions of it becoming a nonprofit. It was like a one-off thing that I thought would be a cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. We had people fly from all over the U S to come to this. It was cool. absolutely insane. New York, Philly, California, you know, people from all over came to this event and it blew me away. And, you know, we had motivational speakers there. Um, if you're familiar with a diabetic and powerlifter by the name of Chris Rudin. Mm-hmm. So Chris yeah. Rudin spoke at the first Bulls and Barbells event. He's spoken at a few others as well. He's a good friend of mine. And so, you know, there's a point where I stopped and I looked around the room and I realized that I was normal in this room. Mm, yeah. and the, the profound effect that that had on my mentality was undescribable. You know, it was a, a feeling of peace, a feeling of uh, community and belonging. The fact that, you know, if a Dexcom went off in the room, no one turned around and stared at the person. Like, what is that? Is that a bomb that's fixing to go off? Yeah. You know, we just knew what it was. And it was like, oh, hey, do you have something to treat that? Because here, you know, someone else does. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in fact, at the second Bolson Barbells that we did in Philly, I had a 50 blood sugar as I'm walking up to give my presentation. So we had to delay the whole presentation like 15 minutes while I'm shoving glucose tabs in my mouth that someone else brought because I'd forgot mine in the hotel room. So, you know, it, it, it became something fast and much bigger than myself so quickly. And I met who has now become my best friend. Uh, she refers to herself as my diabetes wife. And I don't think she gets enough credit for what she does, but Roz Such, Rosalind Such, who is a high-level powerlifter, she's competed at nationals uh, in the drug-tested powerlifting division. Um, you know, she's squatting well over 300 pounds. She's getting on that 200-pound bench press, deadlifting well over 300 pounds. So, and a phenomenal athlete in herself. But she came to that event, and afterwards, she came to me and. <laughs> And Roz is a, a very, she's a, from Philly and she's very much a Philly girl. And like, we're going to do something with this. And she's like, so this is what we have to do to make this a nonprofit. And I went, are you being serious? And she goes, yes. But like, this is something that needs to continue. It needs to go on. And so me and Roz were the first official, you know, members of the board of Bolts and Barbells as a nonprofit of 501c3. And we've brought on key people since then to aid us in continuing that journey and it's just every time i host one of these events everyone makes fun of me i cry at every one of these events and you know i'm a pretty emotional person you know if you can't tell i'm pretty passionate about things oh yeah just to sit back and look around the room and realize that you are bringing people together that do feel isolated that do feel alone and giving them a safe place to learn and to grow and to make relationships at last is very humbling and far outside the realm of what I thought that I would ever do with my life. 
That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes we start things and we don't even realize where they're going. And, and uh, that's awesome that you've had that such a great experience and to feel so a part of something. Um, and you're helping so many people. And I can't wait to, to go to one of your events in 2021. Man, that's, that, that's amazing to hear. How many events have you had since you started it, all of this? Oh, I always have to count. So there's Austin, Philly, Miami, San Jose. We've had six. Um, and we've gone through some growth hurdles and stuff like that because we are all kind of part-time. You know, we, we do it that way so that none of us, we don't have to make money working for bowls and barbells. And so that all the money that we, uh, you know, because it's event based, it's not, um, we're not running programs concurrently all the time. So we have an event, we sell an admission to the event, we usually pair it with a social event, a dinner afterwards and an informal dinner the night before, so that people have time to interact with each other. And so all that money is directly put back into future for that event and future events. And okay. so, you know, there's, we're not all, unfortunately, we're not all, all independently wealthy to fund the thing. So <laughs> we, we've definitely had our fair share of hurdles, but, you know, we're all very passionate about it. And, you know, we have about an 80% retention of people coming back to the events. And so mm. that makes me feel good. That makes me feel like that people, see the benefit in this being more than just, you know, we're going to go pick up weights and put them down. Yeah. It's a community based thing. We're seeking to educate, inspire and give people a place to feel uh, a part of something. And that's, I think that's the biggest overreaching things that we're trying to accomplish with that. Um, you know, when passion meets opportunity, you can do incredible things. You know, and I'd be lying if I said it wasn't terrifying to me. It's a little known fact, but I am terrified of little kids. <laughs> terrified of little kids. And I <laughs> okay. do speaking engagements with, at camps and stuff where there are little children. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you just go in and you know that you're going to get some really oddball questions. But, you know, there's a photo of me kneeled down talking to this little I want to say she was four or five and explaining to her how having type one was like having a superpower and then the parents sending me a message after the fact that how she was still talking about it days later let you know that you are doing what you're meant to be doing that is so cool yeah and let's face it I'm a dumb dumb that picks up rocks for a hobby. Like that's not, I am not anyone even remotely special in as far as that goes. You know, I've had a pretty adequate life. It's not been overly difficult, but you know, it's, it's less, it's just being a living example and being willing to step into the spotlight and open yourself up for criticism because I've gotten a, more than my fair share of that as well mm -hmm. to be someone in the spotlight for others to see, you know, not because I'm special or any better than anyone else, but I'm like, Hey, if I can do this, you absolutely can do this. Mm. You know, one of the most memorable bowls and barbell events for me was since I do strongman, we always tend to incorporate a strongman lift or activity into the events. Cool. So we have speakers in the first part of the day, 
break for lunch, and typically we have lifting under coached supervision in the second part of the day. Usually squat, overhead press, and deadlift, because those are just big lifts. So I snuck this in on people. They were not expecting it. I never tell them ahead of time what we're going to do for the strongman stuff. And I'd gotten a harness and a tow rope, and we were using an extended cab Chevy full-size truck. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And... Because the first thing people would have done would I, if I'd have told them ahead of that, well, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I took them out there and every one of them did it. Every one of them did it. And that changes the mentality of someone. That's why I love strongman because it's kind of big visual, you know, feats of strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, they went into it going, there's no way I can do this. And then when they do it, then the mindset, you could almost see kind of shift and be like, well, I didn't think I could do this and I did it. What else can I do yeah. that I previously thought that I couldn't? Yeah. So that's one of the most meaningful bulls and barbells experiences is just seeing that kind of change come over people's faces. Wow. Man, you're, you're impacting so many lives. Like that is, that's just amazing to hear between the kids at the camps and, and giving opportunities and creating space where others can literally come from across the country to, to experience that. That's just purely amazing, Rodney. Like that, that is awesome. You should be very proud of yourself because that's, that's awesome. Thank you. I, you know, I'm just trying to leave the world a little better than I found it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm in a position to do that. My gifts, as far as my personality traits, seem to lend themselves to that. So, you know, it would be because, I, I, again, you know, not to harp on a dead horse, but you know, not meeting another diabetic till I was in my twenties was very difficult, was very, very difficult. And I don't know what my life would have been like if I'd have been exposed to the camps and conferences Mm -hmm. or just meeting other diabetics, Uh, you know, during that time when I I had an easier childhood or, you know, what it made me compare myself to these others. I, you know, I don't know. I can't go back and look at the past, but I have to believe that, well, I see it. Friends for Life is one of the biggest examples of this. Is it's been going on for so long. You see the children that were some of the first attendees are now the counselors. And you see their love and their passion for that event, that week-long event. And you see their, their friendship and their camaraderie and stuff like that. And you go, anytime I can make a group of people or get a group of people together and give them the ability to form those bonds is... I need to be doing this. I, I, you know, for me personally, like, I feel like I have to be doing this. Wow, man. I'm just so blown away with everything you've done and, and everything you've said. You know, almost left me speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I've got enough words for both of us. Uh, But you know, that's, it's the same thing with what y'all are doing here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not to me, anyone that's working in the diabetes space in an effort to connect people you know, I'm your biggest fan because, you know, any success my event has come from has come off the backs of people that help get the word out or, you know, that I've met and that I've mentioned it, or, you know, you found the website and you thought, Hey, it'd be great to come to. And now you've got me on your podcast and that exposes me to other people, you know, so it's, there's not any difference whatsoever. You know, the, the, impacting one life or 10 lives is no different in my eye. Yeah. If you improve one single human being, 
you've done a great deed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I fully agree. Um, full heartedly. Uh, wow. And thank you for the, those words too. So kind of uh, wrapping things up maybe a little bit, but probably would go on many tangents from here. Um, <laughs> so one of our favorite segments is, you know, burst my beta cells, Rodney. So uh, what's something recently or just what's a, what's something that just burst your beta cells when you see it, whether online or in person regarding uh, diabetes? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I see this post happen a lot in the diabetes groups. Um, at least once a month, I would say, is the, the how often this occurs. And I understand why it occurs. And I don't fault the people for asking the question. I just wish that they would understand how inaccurate the answers as it relates to their personal needs is. And that is, how many units of insulin do you take? Mm. This is, we, we've talked about it all, all during the podcast. The individual variability is so high mm -hmm. that someone's numbers will never be a direct comparison. I don't care if you are 155 pounds to 155 pounds five foot five and five foot five and the same hair color and the same eye color. Mm. These two people will never have the same insulin needs. Yep. There is no physical way. They may even use the same dosages, but how they use those dosages and how it relates to their body is so completely different and foreign from each other. It's a completely inapt comparison. And I understand why people do it. They want it. They feel like, well, what else can I be doing? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, they see people post, well, I'm only using like eight units of Lantus a day. Well, what else are they doing? How long have they been diabetic? What does their day-to-day -day activity look like? Well, mm -hmm. you know, all these things come into play. Mm -hmm. And so to compare yourself to that is, is, you know, just setting yourself up for failure. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that happened to me is when I was dieting down, I went from 230 pounds to 193 pounds. And wow. during that time, I was constantly concerned about how much Lantus I was using. Mm. Constantly. And I worried about it. I stressed out about it. I got in my head about it. I said, I'm a failure. Never going to make, you know, at this time I was trying to break the 200 pound barrier, get you know, sub 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's never going to happen if I can't, you know, get my Lantus dose to this X amount because that's what everyone that is this size takes. And I was, I finally called a friend of mine, Ginger Vieira, who was a powerlifter at the time and has written a few books. One of being my, one of my favorites, the diabetes science experiment. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to her and she's, she coaches other type ones as well. And she said, Rodney, I've got a female figure competitor that weighs you know, 50 pounds, well, probably 70 pounds less than you do, who is taking <laughs> 20 more units of Lantus a day than you are currently. And she's in shape stage, meaning she was setting about 10 to 11% body fat and ready to step on the bodybuilding stage. Far below the body fat level that I was at. <laughs> so it, it just kind of, and she's like, it's such a meaningless comparison you know you need to take 
it's more important to be in range than to worry about how much insulin you're taking. Yeah. You know, because one begets the other. If you spend a lot of time with an elevated blood sugar, it, your insulin resistance clots. You know, mm -hmm. that's just something we see empirically happen. So if I'm constantly letting myself run high because I'm scared to take too much insulin, I'm, I'm furthering myself away from that end goal that I'm kind of falsely trying to, to uh, procure. Yeah. So it just kind of changed my mindset. It went, okay, well, I'm going to stop worrying about how much insulin I need and just take as much as I need to get the desired result. Mm -hmm. well, lo and behold, I dropped another seven pounds and walked around with abs for the first time in my life, <laughs> taking more Lantus mm -hmm. than I had when I had the conversation with her. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's that's that comparison that need to like put ourselves against another person because we feel like we're inadequate or we feel like we're not doing enough mm -hmm. is damaging. And yeah. it, this is a comparison that people keep locking in on. And it's, I'm not going to say it's harmful, but it's, it's definitely leads you down a path of frustration. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, no, it can definitely, because then you can put, start putting labels uh, that come secondary to that um, comparison that just, that lead you down th those paths that you mentioned. And, and it's such a, like you said, you know, probably most people that ask those questions are just trying to see what else more they can do. Uh, but it's it's almost the wrong question at the wrong time, uh, almost because it's. It, I I would say it could be damaging because you know in terms of your overall mental state that could be created after that. Yeah. So. Yeah, the the anxiety and the the, the um, kind of self negative talk that occurs at the end of that. Yeah, you're at, you're absolutely right. That that's a a big proponent of it, and so you know I just encourage people to take your diabetes and form your own conclusions within it. You yeah. know, are you losing weight or, you know, if that's your goal is to lose weight and if you're mm -hmm. losing weight at this amount of insulin, why is there any need to go lower? Are you in yeah. range? You know, are you, or is your deviation, you know, in a, in a good place, mm -hmm. well, then you're using the appropriate amount of insulin for you. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, if you're above range for long periods of time and your deviation is much greater, well, then maybe you do need more insulin. And that's not, again, it's just a data point. You know, right. the, I, I mean, yeah, there's some really like stupidly high amounts of insulin that I've seen some studies point to can have some effects, but usually those are just related to storage issues and metabolic syndrome issues. Mm -hmm. you know, but we can't, you know, I haven't seen any study that says this is the correct amount of insulin for you to take. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think we'll ever see a study like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, what about you, Grady? Anything, anything that's burst in your beta cells recently? Uh, yeah. So I, I kind of took like a month off of my uh, CGM. And so I started back on and, and using it. And the first two uh, sites that I used failed, like within within that day, um, oh, wow. which was so frustrating. Like um, trying, you know, trying to calibrate it and get it going, and then and then it failing, and I have to take it out, and then the next day having to start all back over. Had to do that twice. So 
Um, by the third one, I'm like, if this doesn't work, I'm just going to throw the whole box out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, it's definitely going to be frustrating. I, um, I didn't have that exactly, but when I, for the very first time I put, uh, my CGM on my arm. Oh, how'd it go? I've been, I've been scared for years to put something on my arm and uh, it's not so much a burst my beta cells, but it was just more of a, something that like, ah, oh, like I overcame that fear. Uh, yeah. it's, it's gone well. I've had to put some rock tape on and some other like taping adhesives on it too. But, uh, um, it's definitely been something that, um, was a big moment that I overcame because it's just been years of me, like thinking I couldn't do that. I'm not, yeah. I don't have the biggest arms in the world by any means, but I just thought, just thought it would hurt. So <laughs> one of the things, the reason why I wear the CGM on the stomach is when I did put it on my arm, I was 50 points off always. Oh, wow. It just couldn't get it calibrated into range or nothing. Mm. And I'm, I'm an endomorph. So I carry a lot of my fat and body mm. mass in my torso and not really in my arms. Mm -hmm. So when I would go overhead with stuff, I could feel, you know, whether it was placebo or actually feeling it, but I felt like I could feel the wire of the decks, you know, mm -hmm. in that, in that muscle as I was flexing and it made me hesitate. Sure. You know, you feel something wrong and you hesitate. So, and I was like, ah, it's gotta go. But <laughs> that's the preferred place for me to put the Omnipod. Uh. And I never had issues with it there. Uh, but you're talking about putting it on your arm, overcome a fear. So I, I was getting some, some nodding issues and stuff like that for the Omnipod on the arms. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I got the bright idea that I was going to put it on my pet. Oh, how'd that go? Oh. Honestly, it's really good. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I put the, I flip it upside down. Okay. So that the cannula is at the, the meat of the pack, not up here, you know, by the shoulder, but down here in the, the meaty part of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I was like, Oh, this is dumb. I can't believe I'm doing this. It's going to hurt <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Put it in. It was fine. Absorption was great. Nice. Uh, I don't, I didn't use it that often because it was, you know, then I've got people asking me if I have a pacemaker, Yeah. <laughs> even if it's on the wrong side. You're right. <laughs> well, they you don't know. know. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> Uh, so, and it, it just, it sleeping was weird. Cause I have to sleep on my side cause it's as big as I am. So mm -hmm. I would sleep on my side and it would like bunch up sometimes and feel weird the next morning, you know, mm -hmm. but other than that, yeah, the peck was a weird place. Wow. I've never done legs or anything like that. Mm. Uh, because the same way I have chicken legs. <laughs> <laughs> I look like this is probably going to date me a little bit, but you remember the, Kind of schoolhouse rock characters back in the day, Mr. Strong was an upside down triangle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's me. <laughs> no no legs, all shoulders. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um so uh Rodney, any kind of closing thoughts? Um, you know, just uh, you know, another platform to say some more things, diabetes, strength related, not diabetes related, just anything else um, on your mind before we close up? Man, I just really appreciate y'all having me on. It's been a great experience. Um, you know, both of you guys are obviously very intelligent in putting out some really amazing content for the diabetes community. Um, highly encourage people to check out your other podcasts that you've done. I've mm -hmm. listened to most of them at this point. Mm -hmm. um, strength sports is one of the things that it's never too late to get into. 
So I, one of my best friends and clients is Linda Franklin and she is 63 years old and holds world records in her age and weight division. Wow. That's awesome. She's been powerlifting a little over two years. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, type one diabetic for over 37 years. So it's never too late to begin the journey. And I've never had anyone tell me that they're too strong. (laughs) (laughs) So get in the gym, find something that you maybe not love at first, can tolerate doing, and then watch how your body transforms. And as that happens, watch how your mind transforms and watch how you became more capable in all aspects of your life because you realize that if you have goals and you work towards those goals proactively, you can accomplish some amazing things. Amazing. Yeah. Where can, uh, where can people find more about bolus and barbells and more about you and, you know, just kind of interact with you more, Rodney. So bolus and barbells has a Facebook page, bolus and barbells on Facebook. We have Instagram as well. We also have a website where as we kind of come out of the current situation, we'll be posting updates uh, on how we're going to move forward. Uh, Uh And so people can reach out, get on the mailing list there so that they can get updated when new things are posted. For me personally, um, you know, I always have my Facebook, Rodney Miller. Um, I tend to do a lot of communication, maybe not a lot of posting anymore, but a lot of communication on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is strong like troll. So my nickname is cave troll because I'm as wide (laughs) as I am tall. I'm afraid of heights and I can't swim. So I should probably be holding up a bridge somewhere living under it. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's my nickname is cave troll. So strong like troll. Uh, if people are interested in coaching, they can reach out to me there. Um, I kind of run a very different kind of coaching type program than I think what most people would be looking into. It's all online based, but I have years of experience in wringing the most out of that space. So would love to talk to people if you've got questions. I just spoke to a uh, guy and his son. Son just started working out. And they posted in the type one athletes group that he'd gone and unfortunately bought this weight gainer protein. So there was like 125 grams of carbs per shake. And uh, rightfully so everyone was like, please don't. And I was like, Hey, I reached out to him. I'm like, Hey, if you want to jump on a a quick phone call, I can explain, you know, here are some of the other options out there nutrition wise. You know, and because uh, they ended up looking at a whey isolate and a whey composite type protein. Mm. So I just wanted to kind of explain some of the differences between the two and how they tend to interact with blood glucose levels. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm always trying to do stuff like that. If, if I have a resource that people need, I'm here to give it. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for being on the podcast, sharing your wisdom uh, sharing just inspiration, your stories and the laughter. Um, this has probably been the fun, most fun podcast. I think I've been, you know, we've done. So, um, I've really enjoyed your time and company and I can't wait to meet you and go to one of your events in 2021. Once things kind of settle down. Awesome, man. Glad to be here and be glad to have you.
Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.